This is Ottawa's home for breaking news 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. News Talk 580 CFRA. Brian Lilly with you till the top of the hour. Seriously did consider just dropping everything that we had planned to talk about the fact that Big Joe is not going to Winnipeg with the Red Blacks. Seriously upsetting. Seriously upsetting. Uh, but no, no, we're going to continue on and uh, and bring you the, the conversations that we had planned. Fast and the Furious happens this time every week. Anthony Fury, Sun Media columnist, national comment editor, and all-around good guy. He'll join us uh, just before 2 o'clock to discuss the number of Canadian radicals and the fact that it's being kept under wraps. We know that there are Canadian radicals inside and outside of the country. At one point, we had figures on that. But at this point, they're not saying. They don't want to give us an update on that. We'll talk to uh, Christy Cameron, CFRA reporter Christy Cameron. She's got a a documentary on Ghostbusters. Now, I actually know very little of what she's coming in to talk about, so I'm going to try and find out between now and then. This was just put on in front of me, and um, it involves Ghostbusters. I want to know if it's the real ones, or is she talking about Dan Aykroyd? Is she going to tell me to keep calm and chive on? I don't know. We'll see in a little while. Uh, Shortly, though, we will be talking to Lori Goldstein, uh, another Sun columnist, just because I like Lori, to discuss issues of climate change. Lori is a bit more rational than me, a bit more sedate than me. Um, That's not fair. I'm fairly rational. I read you facts from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the official report on climate change. And we've been talking a lot about this because that was the, the premier's big meeting yesterday was on climate change. And, of course, you, you've you heard the audio. We can play it again of, of Justin Trudeau's cars idling outside. Yep, that's right. That's the PM's cars idling outside while he was getting ready to, to lecture us all on all of this. Well, environmental activist David Suzuki, reading to you from mclean's.ca right now environmental activist david suzuki is comparing canada's oil sands industry to slavery just as prime minister justin trudeau and the country's premiers discuss a national climate change plan to slavery really but he was on uh giving an interview and he decl- he compared it to slavery he said, who would say today that the economy should be should have come before slavery? What? That's not an argument that people are making. He was responding to Premier Brad Wall, who said, whatever it is we are going to, uh, we agree to going into Paris, whatever we agree to as a country, we need to make sure we understand what impact that's going to have on jobs, what additional impact that will have on the energy sector, which is already suffering massive layoffs in this country. Bradwell was entirely reasonable last night, coming out of the First Minister's meeting. He's the lone free market voice. Well, Christy Clark a little bit. And the two of them stood next to each other, chit-chatting quite a bit as Justin Trudeau gave his comments and was fielding questions from the media. We have very few free market-oriented or market-oriented governments left in the country. We are dominated by progressives coast to coast. And I don't think that's a good thing. I wouldn't think it was a good thing if it was all conservatives coast to coast. I'm not sure that, you know, I I think having this 
uh, checks and balance system, and that's part of the checks and balances, I think that can work. Having one ideology from coast to coast at the provincial and federal level, not a good idea. But Brad Wall said, fine, we, we can work together. We can have a, a unified front going into Paris. But let's remember that we've got tens of thousands of people that have lost their jobs just before Christmas. And by the way, he also chastised the media, the central Canadian media, for ignoring the fact that thousands and thousands of people have lost their jobs in the energy industry and said that this would be a huge national story if it were another industry. It would be a huge national story if it were happening in southern Ontario, let's say. But because it's in Alberta, because it's in Saskatchewan, the central Canadian media don't care. It's just people out west losing their jobs. It's people in what the Americans call flyover country losing their jobs. But to David, to David Suzuki saying, let's be cognizant of that and not make things worse with the policies we adapt. David Suzuki says that's like arguing put the economy before slavery. We can't get rid of slavery because it would hurt the economy. Interesting. What David Suzuki may not realize is that there were plenty of southern plantation owners wanted to stop using slaves. And it was, they wanted to buy cheaper machinery from Europe to replace them. There were tariffs put in place by the northern states that wanted to make that same machinery on North American soil and block the cheap European machinery from coming in. The northern state machinery was actually more expensive than keeping the system going. Both sides had their problems in keeping slavery alive. These are the things David Suzuki doesn't quite know, doesn't quite understand. He's just going to spout off. Worrying about the economy is the same as trying to keep slavery going. We'll uh, hook up with Lori Goldstein in a couple of minutes. Christy Cameron talking about the Ghostbusters documentary and Anthony Fury on radicals being kept under wraps in Canada. Ottawa's home for breaking news, covering what matters to you. News Talk 580 CFRA. We are serious about climate change. This means making decisions based on science. Justin Trudeau last night talking about how serious he is about climate change inside the Museum of Nature, while outside... His motorcade was rumbling along, idling for hours. Don't worry, though. He's serious about this issue. Laurie Goldstein, longtime columnist with the Toronto Sun and all-around good guy, joins me now from uh, the Big Smoke. Laurie, your latest column says Trudeau and the Premier's robbing is blind. Before we get into that, are, are you surprised to hear his motorcade ran for hours outside? Nice big SUVs? Well, you know, no. I mean, that's how Al Gore travels. And, uh, I mean... Think of what's going to happen next week in uh, Paris. I mean, here all these UN poobahs are going to fly in and stay at five-star uh, hotels and eat at three-star Michelin restaurants and tell the rest of us to consume less so we can save the world. There's 50,000 people going to Paris, 25,000 of them official delegates. If these people believed that the earth was facing imminent an imminent existential threat from global warming that could fundamentally cause catastrophe 
in the next 30 to 50 years, do they sound like people who really believe that if 50,000 of them are going to Paris to tell the rest of us not to fly so much? Yeah. Well, I, I, and then once they're there, uh, as you say, the opulence on display will be incredible. I remember someone taking in cameras to the Cancun uh, confab. Uh, that was a couple of years ago now. It was unreal. It was they were doing the exact things, exact same things they were telling the rest of us we we couldn't live without. But here at home, you say we're going to be robbed blind by this this national attempt to bring about a climate change plan. Yeah. Why? Well, look, if you believe that this is a serious issue, let's start from from that. If you believe this is a serious issue, then anybody who's serious about how you craft carbon pricing will tell you this. You, you put on a carbon tax. You don't do cap-and-trade, which is what Premier Wynne is going to do in Ontario, because, uh, because cap-and-trade, European experience has shown, is, is very open to political corruption, um, uh, organized there, crime. There, there was gets, mafia involvement, right? Yeah, well, organized crime gets involved in, in all kinds of fraud, including uh, tax fraud, and it just doesn't work. Um, it, it just hasn't worked. Um, in, so if you're serious, then you look at a, uh, at a carbon tax. And if you're serious, you don't just take that money out and spend it on what you like. You tax things that cause a lot of fossil fuel emissions to take a lot of energy. So if somebody's going to buy uh, a gas-guzzling uh, SUV, you hit them hard with a carbon tax. You make it hard. You know, you, you make, it's like essentially a sales tax uh, that you, you hit them hard and you make them pay a lot of extra money. Right, as opposed to a um, a very fuel efficient car, where you give them a, a break on the tax. But then the other thing you do is, with all that money that you get, what you're really trying to do is change human behavior. So you take all that money and you give it back to people in the form of income tax cuts and tax cuts to business. The theory being that if we're ever going to crack this nut, we have to change human behavior in the first world. We have to get people to make low-carbon consumption decisions, and we have to make it worth their while. And the theory is, if you hit people hard um, on gas guzzlies, those kinds of things, um, well, that's, that's the stick, right? Okay. But the, but the carrot is, we're going to let you keep more of your money. We're going to let you earn more of your money and keep more of your money. So therefore, you become more productive. What, what Notley in Alberta is doing with her $3 billion a year carbon tax, where the government will decide where the money goes, and what Wynne is doing with her $2 billion a year uh, cap-and-trade system in Ontario, where the government will decide where the money goes, is they're just taking money out of the economy. I mean, obviously, the last thing Albertans need right now is $3 billion more a year out of their pockets. Their, their economy is underwater because of the low price of gas and oil. You know, there, there are whole floors that have emptied out in the office towers of downtown Calgary. Of course. Like, I think there's 30,000 jobs lost. And anyway, look, emissions are going to go down because of that. Uh, I mean, obviously, when oil's at $40 a barrel, um, and, and it's very expensive to do oil out, uh, you know, it's different from $150 a barrel. But having said all that, these things that they're doing not only have it worked wherever they but they're just cash grabs. They have nothing to do with lowering greenhouse gas emissions effectively, and they won't. It, and we know that. Norway's had a carbon tax since 1991. Its own statisticians, the equivalent of Statistics Canada, uh, Statistics Norway, looked at it in, early, in the early 2000s, and they went, you know what? This really hasn't worked. This, I mean, we've got a lot of money from it, 
and we and, and the government's invested in a lot of things from it. But if you're asking us, was this a major motivator in lowering Norway's um, greenhouse gas emissions? The answer is no. And with cap and trade, uh, one of the things that destroys cap and trade is that you give free carbon credits, essentially free money to big industrial no, polluters. Governments love giving out free money, our money anyway. Well, that's what that's the short of it is in cap and trade. You set up this whole system of carbon credits and and industries can only go up to their the, the, the number of carbon credits they bought and yada, yada, yada. But what Ontario is saying is, well, for at least the first four years, we're going to give 100 percent of the emission uh, credits to big business. Now, what they will do is what they did in Europe. They will pass along the free carbon credits they got as if they'd bought for them, as if they'd as if they'd. Uh, bought them because there will be some trading amongst non-exempt industries, and and um, and then gradually the government starts replacing free credits with um, credits that cost money eventually. But what destroyed the credibility of the emissions trading scheme was free carbon credits, and Ontario is about to do exactly the same thing. When they say they're, when Glenn Murray and Kathleen Wynne say they're making polluters pay, it's absolute nonsense. They're giving polluters our money. That's what they're doing. And then we'll pay through higher prices for almost all goods and services. That's uh, all they're doing. So who, the who in Ontario is going to get this? Uh, is it going to be the car manufacturers? What what left we have of the steel industry? Will it be you know, our, our own Ontario Hydro? Well, it, it won't be. It won't be. Um, it, you see, this is why industry is okay with cap and trade, and for that matter, cap and traps. What, what they're going to do is raise their prices. That's what they're going to do is they're going to factor in. Well, we have to buy these carbon credits from the government, even if we get them for free. That's a new cost, so we have to put that cost into our um, uh, the cost of our goods and services. So, to the extent that in a weak economy, people put off um, people put off buying things because uh, they don't have as much money as they used to, those various industries may, may suffer. But also emissions will lower just because people are being made poorer and poorer. So it, it's an un, it, it, the real consequence is if you take away more and more money from people, they have less money to spend on stuff, and therefore emissions decrease. But that's because you're basically provoking a recession. And so that's the only indirect way this is going to work. But but what it basically means is well is, that's okay that's with, okay though because David Suzuki if you haven't heard uh, compared putting the economy first uh, to slavery so yeah well you know I really <laughs> I, I mean I, I sort of don't pay much attention to so but but let me ask you we're almost almost out of time Laurie sure. I want to point out that in your column you do complement British Columbia's carbon tax as being essentially revenue neutral not everyone benefits equally you right but it does return the money raised in tax cuts to the public, but there's a problem in the emissions reductions. Explain yeah, that. Uh, according to according to their own figures, it's going to be three megatons by 2020. Uh, three megatons, China puts that out every 2.5 hours, and China doesn't have any carbon pricing scheme and isn't likely to for the near future. Uh, China had that big agreement with Barack Obama uh, and, and the U.S. to lower their emissions or at least have them peak but that's not till 2030. Well, it's also also that was widely misreported. Uh, that's not that's not 
that's not a, an agreement. It, it's basically two countries that did a statement of future intention. 2030 is when most experts say China's emissions are going to start to peak and go down anyway because the technology is going to improve. They're, they're going to find cleaner ways of, 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 consume, of making energy and all that. So, but the biggest thing is, I mean, I looked at it, okay, well, where are the binding targets? Where are the penalties? Uh, what happens if you don't? There's nothing like that. They're, all China said was, in the future, we will lower our emissions. That's all they said. And, and Mr. Obama didn't get any uh, uh, guarantees or anything. It's like, okay, if you don't, here's what will happen. But then again, the United States doesn't have a national carbon price either. Um, and so by having a national system where Trudeau says he's going to set it up with the provinces, basically, so Canada-wide will be putting a new fee on our industry that doesn't happen in the United States. That's why Ontario is giving out all these free credits, because if it doesn't give out free credits then a lot of these companies, their costs are going to go up. They're going to leave for jurisdictions that don't have carbon pricing. And the United States nationally doesn't have carbon pricing. Laurie, great talking to you. Take Although care. you depress me. Thanks so much. <laughs> Bri- Brian Lilly with you to the top of the hour. This is News Talk 580 CFRA. of a certain age, and I might be, that song definitely brings back memories. It's quite funky back in the day, wasn't it, Ghostbusters? Well, there's another Ghostbusters movie being made, but that's not what we're talking about. Christy Cameron's with me in the studio right now to talk about a, a Ghostbusters documentary? That's right. So, so th- this isn't someone that just likes listening to... 80s music on a Tuesday. No. This is someone that loves Ghostbusters. That's right. So this is a local man who watched Ghostbusters as a child, like many of us did, and absolutely fell in love with it. And he's loved it his entire life. He says he's probably seen it 80 to 100 times. Oh, wow. His wife actually has a rule where if they go and watch Ghostbusters, if it's in theaters somewhere, when they do sort of like a special showing, she has a rule that he can't actually recite the lines. He has to sit quietly. He loves <laughs> he loves the film that I, much. I, I thought it would have been you've got to take me for a steak dinner or <laughs> no, a nice dinner or something. Apparently she's very understanding. Okay. But so he's had this love of Ghostbusters his whole life, and uh, now... He's 30 years old. He's actually filming a documentary about Ghostbusters fans. So he's raised more than $30,000 online to fund this film. He's not being backed by a big studio right now. So it's him that's uh, filming the movie. He's editing it himself. He's got a small team of three other people that are helping him film this. It's really a, a sort of a project of passion, if you will. His name is Brendan Mertens. You might remember that name because he ran for city council okay, during yeah. the last election and uh, kicked up a lot of interest online over uh, a lot of sort of joke videos 
where he promised a bear surveillance program. So this guy's obviously got a sense of humor. He began filming this documentary, Ghost Heads, about eight months ago. He wants to have the film out by July of 2016 to coincide. That's, that's just before the, the new one will come out. That's right, in time for the Ghostbusters okay. reboot. So this film is called Ghost Heads. It's a documentary where he looks at sort of the extreme side of Ghostbusters fans. <laughs> I didn't know there was an extreme side. Apparently there's a whole subculture. So if you think of Trekkies... Sort of like that, but for Ghostbusters. So Merton's told me that he's gone around the world or he's interviewed fans all around the world from the U.S. to Canada, Mexico, Australia, Italy and the U.K. about this movie. So in the film, we have a few main stories and we follow these people throughout the film as well as getting reactions of those stories from the creators itself, hopefully. So there's one story that really speaks to me. Uh, there's a boy who's 16 years old who has cerebral palsy, and my mother has cerebral palsy, so I'm, I'm, it's nice to see somebody dress up and not feel that disability, that would dress up and just go out into the world, like no matter what they look like, and, and just be this social butterfly. And it's something nice that I don't think the creators of these films saw their material being used as such a powerful medium. Mm-hmm. And where is this guy from? Oh, that's Florence, Alabama. The only continents we have not hit up with this film is South America and Africa. Those are literally the only two continents that have, have no Ghostbuster fans that I have contacted or them contacting me yet. I, I, I thought I would have admitted my, my inner geekiness in admitting to you that I watched the Saturday morning cartoon that came out of Ghostbusters after the movie, but this is something else. Oh, that's right. Well, Brandon Mertens actually has a, a Ghostbuster podcast. He is in love with this film. It really means a lot <laughs> to him. And this, you know, this project, as you can imagine, interviewing all these people, he's going down to L.A. in two weeks. It's, uh, it's quite a costly project for him to take on, which is why he has this website where he's sort of getting money from people who are willing to donate. And you can see the donations coming in every it's amazing. hour. It's amazing what you can do with crowdfunding. Right That's now. right. And he said, you know, that $30,000 really will help this film get through. It probably isn't going to be enough. They're going to be trying to get this together in time for July of 2016. But uh, he's editing it himself, so he gets up before work this morning. He was up before going to work. He works in the the healthcare field, so he's up bright and early at his computer editing. He'll be doing the same thing when he goes home tonight. And it's all because he really feels like this film has a a purpose. With the movie that we're trying to make, I I want people to watch it and and if they feel weird or if they feel like they're alone in the world, they're not. I want people to feel normal after watching this. This is something that you you watch and go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a 14-year-old who's like doesn't have the most conventional home life, but uh, you know I can relate to these people on screen, and, and I'm kind of normal by dressing up in this cosplay uh, uh, outfits and, and whatnot. So this really is linking into the whole Trekkie cosplay type of thing. It, it, it is a subculture of itself that I didn't know existed. Apparently so. And there's a lot of people, like you heard him say, all around the world that he's interviewing. And this film sort of means different things to different people. But it's interesting how it impacts their lives. And that's sort of the story that he's seeking to tell is how has it helped some people? What has this film done for them in their life? And, you know, how sometimes maybe it's a little bit too extreme for some people's lives that it can be detrimental in some ways. I I know one person that might be really interested in this. He happens to be from Ottawa, had him on the show last week talking about a much more serious issue, the Paris terrorist attacks. But 
uh, every time I turn around, it seems like Gavin McInnes is writing another column on the upcoming Ghostbusters movie and why it will ruin everything. <laughs> so I think I, I'm going to have to email him on this and uh, see what he and thinks. Let him know. Now, you you also recently interviewed William Shatner. So are you getting right into this? Are you going to be dressing up in costumes, <laughs> going to Comic Con soon? I don't think so. Christy Cameron coming to you from Comic Con <laughs> in a costume shortly. <laughs> She's denying it, but I, I think it's true. I don't think so. No, I think uh, I'm 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 definitely I, I certainly admire this man's passion for filming this documentary and doing this all on his own time and uh, really putting so much time and energy into this. So I'll be actually tweeting out the uh, link and you can see the funding website where they're collecting money for this project and there's a All few right. short clips on there as well if you're interested. All right. what's, your, what's your Twitter handle and At what's the website? At CFRA Christie and That's... I will tweet the website. Okay, sounds great. Alright, we're here. What's going on? What the heck are you guys doing? Has everybody gone nuts around here? We got just the thing for that. We call it The Fast and the Furious. Well, let's start the insanity. Unleash the fury! Must be, must be insanity if I'm talking to Anthony Fury. It must be Tuesday as well. <laughs> Anthony Fury joining me on the line from Toronto. Great column uh, in Monday's papers, Anthony. Or uh, No, this is in today's papers. It was out last night. Uh, you are asking the question, why don't we know how many, how many radicals the Mounties and CSIS are tracking? Um, yeah, good point. Why don't we know? Just to be clear, by insanity, you mean not me and what I say, but the things I'm <laughs> writing about, right? I, can we get that on the record? I, I did call you an all-around good guy earlier. Let's not uh, push it. Okay. Um, I'll take what I can get. Yeah, and, well, <laughs> and but I'm not going to take what I can get when I'm talking with CSIS and the RCMP because, Brian, it's, it's very odd stuff. Uh, I tried to get the numbers from them. Uh, yesterday on the number of radicals who are either abroad fighting terror or are at home, and we know they'd like to go abroad and fight terror or have since returned. CSIS tracks the ones who are abroad. RCMP tracks the people who are at home. Uh, The reason why I think we should know now, of course, is that people are really concerned about this. The Paris attacks happened because ISIS adherents did it, and we know ISIS has called for attacks in Canada. They repeated them just the other day by regurgitating calls in Debak magazine. Yeah, their magazine had another call. Exactly. The magazine is is uh, republishing Al-Adnani's calls for attacks, and people seem to take what Al-Adnani says seriously. And folks might say, Fury, hang on a second. This is a national security issue. We're not going to know they shouldn't disclose it. No, 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 not the case at all, because we found out a year ago what the numbers were. So all I want and all the, the politicians I've spoken to want is an update. All right. So October 2014, I'm guessing this was just after the terror attack on Parliament Hill. Um, Michael, uh, Michel Colomb, the, the head of CSIS, revealed 130 to 145 Canadians overseas engaged in terror. So that's 135 to 145 yeah. overseas. And the RCMP said, we're watching about 90 people who are either planning to go abroad or had already returned. So you're right. If they could tell us a year ago, why can't they tell us now? So we got north of 200 Canadians who want to be terrorists or have undertaken measures to show that they are terrorists somehow. And we would like to know where that number stands now. Maybe it's decreased. 
maybe it's increased. Columno did appear this April before a Senate committee in which he he said the numbers going to Iraq and Syria have actually increased by 50% in the three months before then. What? A 50% increase over three months? Well, it's been six months since he told them that figure. I don't know. What's the increase been since then? And I imagine there's been an increase because those guys sure have a lot more huts now. Yeah, so you're not you're not thinking that it's gone down and they want to protect their budget. No, in fact, I I think really what they're doing is just the typical thing that bureaucrats would like to do, which is not give the public information if they don't have to. They've never been acclimatized to having a reporting structure, both to the public or to the senators or MPs who want them. They say no, this is you know our business, and we don't really need to tell it to you. And I think that has to change. In my column, my quote from Senator Daniel Lang, who is the chair of the Senate's National Defense and Security Committee, they issued a report on countering terrorism back this summer. One of their recommendations was the public has a right to know, and it needs clear and unambiguous regular updates. The current government has promised to be open and transparent. That's one of their big pushes. They've said that the public they should know. And is there um, a punchline to the joke? N- well, no, is that I, the setup? I, no, no, this, this is what they're saying. I mean, maybe I know, this is a question for Ralph Goodale at 3.30 today when when he's talking about the issue. Uh, he's part of the news conference talking about the refugee settlement uh, strategy. Right. Uh, look, if if we could find out these numbers under the old government, why can't we find them now? Uh, we do know that this is a local issue as well here in Ottawa. And you used to live in Ottawa, so you know the city well. We've had Ottawa is one of the hot spots, along with Montreal, Calgary, and London, for people either joining or looking to join these groups. This is a very much a local issue for us as well, not just uh, one of these national issues that floats up above and people will talk about. Exactly, there are clusters in Calgary, London, Ontario, Ottawa, Montreal, where we should know the numbers. Now, of course. We're not expecting uh, security agencies to disclose the names and the locations like they do for you know sex offender registries and and that sort of stuff. Uh, that would clearly compromise policing and security efforts. But merely giving a ballpark figure and saying whether it's gone up or down and what they're doing to deal with that is not at all uh, compromising their security endeavors. So they're just they're just doing bureaucratic hoarding. They're keeping you know, the information to themselves. You know what it's reminding me of is back in I think it was 2011, if not it was 2012. They came out and and admitted, uh, the Canadian Border Services Agency and other government officials admitted that we think we've got about 30 war criminals living uh, in Canada that we want to deport. And the media said, oh, 30 war criminals? That's interesting. Who are they? And they said, well, we can't tell you because that would violate their privacy. (laughs) <laughs> now, I don't think they're looking to protect the privacy of terrorists or would-be terrorists here, but it is that that standard bureaucratic response of, we won't tell you. I do think that Canadian enforcement agencies are tighter than they need to be with that, their information. France discloses more information. The state seems to disclose a bit more, and particularly English Canada. I remember during uh, the Luca Magnotta coverage, I think Ian Lafreniere is the name of the gentleman who's a spokesperson for Montreal uh, police. Yeah, you just that, ask that's him a name. question. You ask him a question, he gives you the answer. I mean, a lot. I, I, I know you, you're more familiar with Montreal. Uh, well, I, I used to. Than I, I am, used to but... work with Ian. Uh, he, he's very open. If he can tell you information, he will. 
Right. And it seems like what I see out of Montreal and, and other countries is that, yeah, to your point, if we can disclose it, we might as well disclose it. I think in so many of our different police forces and security services, they automatically look for reasons to not tell you. They give you as little information as possible. And I, and I think that's wrong because we created the government to serve us and they pay our, and we pay their bills. All right. Anthony, uh, as we're talking about this issue of Syria and fighting ISIS and uh, and all of that, I'm sure you're aware of the the developing story of the Russian jet being shot down by one of our NATO allies. I have to ask you, how nervous does that make you? Well, yeah, it, it makes me nervous because, of course, when we're dealing with allies in a NATO system, you hope that you're not going to have much of a margin of error because friendly fire, whether it's in the air or on the ground, is something to be avoided at all costs when there's hostile enough forces who you're trying to combat. Yeah. Well, now we've got uh, competing reports, uh, as I was saying earlier, about whether the and I I haven't seen this change, um, whether the um, uh, the pilots have have lived or not. Uh, competing reports from reputable news sources like Reuters and also claims that uh, the helicopter that was sent to rescue the fighter jet pilot was shot down by U.S. backed rebels. So all of this leading to a tinderbox in an area that was already problematic for the world. A, a, I mean, it's related to so much of what we're talking about, whether it's the refugee situation or the fight against ISIS. And now we could have uh, a different showdown in the area. I think the takeaway is that we want to get in and do the job as decisively as we can and get out. Because when you're picking winners and losers in this giant grab bag, I mean, people who are our allies one day end up not being our allies the next day for various sectarian reasons in that region. And you, you want a quick job. You want to find the most decisive way to, to accomplish your mission. All right. Anthony Fury, thanks for joining us. Thank you as always, Brian. All right. You want to find Anthony's column? I will have it posted up on Facebook later on today, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Right now, I've got Laurie Goldstein's column there on how the premiers and the prime minister are robbing us blind on climate change. I'll queue up Anthony's to be posted later. But if you want to read the, you know, the problems with security officials keeping quiet should be up by about three o'clock. But right now, Laurie Goldstein's column, also my uh, my latest from the rebel.media about Trudeau's hypocrisy at the climate change summit. You've heard the audio all day from me of Trudeau's motorcade idling and rumbling outside his his big confab with the premiers. Now you can see the video. You can see why, why he why and how he's being such a hypocrite at this point. And you can share that. That's important. If you like what you hear on this program, if you like what you see and hear elsewhere of what I'm doing elsewhere, make sure that when you are on social media places like Facebook that you share it. Don't like it? Share it. Gets it in front of more people. We know that the media is weighted in the other direction. This is a voice of sanity here on talk radio and in the other places that I show up throughout the day. It is a voice of sanity. If you agree that it's a voice of sanity, and that you want to help that, then please make sure that you're sharing it. Email, Facebook, however you can. I'm Brian Lilly. That wraps the show for today. Back tomorrow on the Island of Sanity at 10 o'clock. We're going to go out with Stephen Colbert, funny enough, singing Christmas songs. This is Newstalk 580 CFRA. It's another Christmas song. Yay! 
another off-returning, royalty-earning Christmas song. I've got plenty more, so go buy a modem. Log on to iTunes and pay to download them. Pay for another Christmas song. Chestnuts glisten on a silent night. Sleigh bells kissing by candlelight. The tree is frozen, the winter's bright. Who'd have thunk the wise man looks so white? You, don't you want to sing along? To my humble yuletide dreamed up poolside Christmas song. Make it a part of your holiday canon. Make it the heart of my retirement planning. Do sing another Christmas song. Beat it into a fellas. <laughs>